Welcome to the Landmark Theatres Film Club podcast. Today we'll hear a discussion with director Andrew Slater and musician Jacob Dillon about their documentary Echo in the Canyon, recorded at the Landmark in Los Angeles during the film's opening weekend. That was amazing. Um, and now I have the pleasure of bringing down the filmmakers, uh, director Andrew Slater. and executive producer Jacob Dillon. Thank you. So uh, to start, I think, with the obvious question, um, Jacob, you're a singer-songwriter, an artist. Andy, you've been in the music business for a long time. Uh, How'd you guys become filmmakers? How'd this all start? By accident. I think Andy's more of a filmmaker than I am. I'm a participant. He's got, he had a much different job than I, you could probably tell him. Well, I started out trying to make some music, record music, because that's really, I'm not a filmmaker. I wasn't a filmmaker four years ago, and I actually went to somebody else to make this film, and they thought the idea was good, but they didn't want to do it. Uh, I guess, you know, Jacob and I were, we were in a funny place in our lives. I mean, a, I would say a period of transition. I had recently left Capitol Records, which we would describe as fired. And um, <laughs> I was trying to figure out what to do next. And, and Jacob had just done a series of records, two solo records, a Wallflowers reunion record, and an album cycle, and make an album. And so we were sitting around in my house, and on Turner Classic Movies, this film came on called Model Shop, and we saw this film, and in the film, we, which we'd never seen before, we saw the streets of LA and in 67 and 68, all these places that we go to, and it just looked so, you know, it looked so innocent and nice, and for some reason, as, you know, uh, record makers, it reminded us of the songs of that period, and so we went back to start to look at them, and try to find a way to maybe make something new and interesting out of the songs that inspired us to get into music, for me to come here, and, and for Jacob, you know, as part of his history of, uh, you know, music. And making a documentary is kind of an unusual type of filmmaking because you can't just write a script and expect it to come out that way. Um, did it turn out the way you expected going in? No. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we thought the story was, oh, okay, the electrification of folk music happens because maybe the rigidity of the folk scene in New York was so tight that it wouldn't uh, necessarily have given birth to, you know, uh, electrified rock and folk. So we said, hey, you know what, the story's there. It's in New York. It's really when, why people came from New York to moved out to, to California. And what we found was that's not the story at all. The story is was more interesting than when it was here in California when people got here and they started trading ideas. So I think I, I learned, as probably most filmmakers who are in here know, and, uh, that you know the story in a sense finds you. And, or you find it, but you start asking people stuff and then the most compelling thing you sort of gravitate towards and then you, you adapt to what you're finding out. So LA, Laurel Canyon, Sunset Strip, I mean, they're associated with a lot of different eras in music. 
um, you know, the singer-songwriter, Frank Zappa, obviously associated also with Laurel Canyon, Joni Mitchell, lots of people. Um, why'd you pick this era? Well, actually, it began as that we're going to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Southern California music. But be, as most of you can tell, we're past the 50th anniversary of 1965 <laughs> because movies take a long time, um, which I thought it might take six months. I had no idea. Um, and maybe we still didn't take that long compared to how other people do it. Yeah. Um, but it was these songs. It was this, but it was kind of that couple years there, which is um, we found some kind of magic in that 65, 66, before things have been more stereotypically played out, which is the psychedelic stuff. Then we get to the Doors, and we do get to Joni Mitchell, and we get to the singer-songwriter. But this is the part where the bands got together, and they believed, you know had big dreams and they were, they were stacking every group with as much talent as possible. Many songwriters and different singers as they could. Obviously at the end there you see Neil, which is very, you know, it's a metaphor for that's, that wave is kind of over and here we come with the singer-songwriters and personal exploration. But this point was kind of, especially somebody who's in a band, often I'm in a band sometimes, um, but I believe in bands, I love bands, I always did as, as a kid and that's the most fascinating part for me because you're not really you could make a movie about any one of these people, any one of these groups, but it's really the band dynamics and how they do work that I found the most intriguing. More intriguing to me than really going into someone's personal life and, and looking into one singer-songwriter. Yeah, you know, it occurred to me, I mean, you, you obviously have a rarefied experience. You grew up with these people. Um, yeah, well... Oh, well, I'm sorry, you, you knew these people growing up, or a lot of these well, people. Well, not really. Okay, some of them, no? I, you know, actually, most of these people I've known as an adult, really. Okay, but... You've had great success as an artist. You obviously have your own community of really talented people that, that you work with. How does it compare? Do you, do you feel that that period of time was a, you know, never before, never again thing, um, or are there parallels? I think probably I th because it's a, it's a, they just didn't know as much. And we, I have the benefit of fifty years since then of how bands work and history works and dynamic works and. With within bands, um, but they were they were busting open that thing of being in pop rock groups when songs were getting really intelligent, and they hadn't really. I, I don't think they began to really think about themselves and what's in it for me yet, and, and money, and what's my legacy. I don't think they were there yet, and it's just impossible to turn that clock back. I, none of us can do that again. It'd be silly to. Right. Um, I also, you know, I noticed that you didn't pick the obvious songs by these groups. Was that intentional? Was it part of the narrative? It is. Uh, you know, first, the songs we picked were have to be able to be sung well by the singer. You know, it's always about that. You know, you can build a great track, but if you don't have the guy telling you the story, you know, sort of what's the point? But also, they in, e in, in every way, they sort of represent a transitional place for each of the, of the bands. You know, w like Jacob said, we were exploring 65 to 67 when the band sort of came to California. The Beatles had a hit with, um, you know, with, I mean, the Beatles were in Hard Day's Night and bands saw this thing where, you know, being in a band was so much fun and you could, you know, it, they wanted to live that life and so they came out here. So for us, you know, in looking at each of those groups, the Mamas and Papas, we picked Go Where You Want to Go because that was their first single, but it also, is, you know, exemplifies the tension in the group because Michelle's view of a committed relationship was different than John's, her husband's. <laughs> and that ultimately creates tension and breaks the group up. You know, the song we picked for the Birds, we picked two. We picked one was uh, It Won't Be Wrong, which was really the Birds' first single. 
They were the beef eaters. It was called Don't Be Long. And they, that doesn't go well. And you know, then they get dropped from Electra. But we also picked Going Back because that's a moment for the birds, as you find out in the film, where the tension with David was getting you know, pretty intense. And he wanted it, the song about the menage a trois. So we picked that one there. And then you know, you know, two others. I mean, Expecting to Fly really frames the movie. Because I feel like that song, to me, represents the end of the innocence. I mean, I'm sure Neil is writing about the end of a relationship. But in some ways, I just thought the, the, the orchestration, and I, I think they were probably influenced by a day in life, and what George Martin was doing there, trying to strive for something better. And so I sort of like it as a metaphor of the end of the era. And then, you know, it's not a coincidence that uh, Jacob sings in the beginning of the film in Bells of Rimney, is there hope for the future? Because I think we wanted to make something, you know, that was about the kindness and about the sense of community that was going on there. You know, so rather than focus on politics and social stuff, which is all important and all for somebody else to do, it was about the music for us. And so, you know, we were making a film, hopefully, you know, people would come in and see some of that and maybe take some of it outside with them after they leave, because yeah. we need it. <laughs> I think so, definitely. Yeah, I, I spent a good part of the day listening to the album that you guys made on Spotify. Um, and it, it's amazing. I mean, you know, the, the new versions really stand up, which is, you know, Thank must you. have been a, an intimidating thing to go into doing. But you guys, you know, just the group of talent and everything. Um, was there a particular song, Jacob, you wish you wrote? <laughs> From the film? Yeah. One, one through how many? 12, 13, 12? <laughs> yeah, every one of them, for sure. I mean, every one, I mean, well, just wasn't made for these times, probably, if I had to pick one. Right. Which is, you know, it's kind of an interesting title um, and an interesting thought about Brian because we, you know, know a lot about his backstory and saw some of it in the movie. Um, do you think he appreciates that he was such an important part of those times and that, you know, affected so much after? I would hope so. I mean, how could he not? I mean, he's, he's one of the top, when people t have the discussions about popular music, I mean, he's one of the top five that's in every discussion. I would think he notices that and appreciates that. Okay. I'll remind him if I get a chance. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to fire off an email as soon as we're at it. <laughs> you know, when you think of it, the Beatles had George Martin, and they were able to go to places that they might not have gone as the four of them. But Brian, it was really just Brian, this, you know, young guy in, this, in the rooms, you know, directing these accomplished older musicians, and he had that head full of all of those ideas. So, you know, his contribution... Like Jacob says, it's you know it's just so immense. You and Tom says he's like Mozart. So you know we we were so happy to have or him. And as Jackson him. says, can you imagine somebody influencing the Beatles? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Andy, I imagine that Lou Adler was probably someone who you related to a lot. Um, is there a band you wish that you had discovered or managed from 1965? Well. I don't know, man. I, I, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, they're all so good. You know, look, being a manager, y you know, it's, it's not that, it's a very different job. You know, if you have five crazy guys, you've got to take five phone calls. That's okay. You don't want to do that. <laughs> Luckily, when the, when the band is led by one guy, <laughs> you've got your priority list there. But I mean, as a producer, you know, the thing is you always want to make a great, you, you want to make a great song. You want to help bring to life something. You want to help focus an artist's vision for what they have for the, a record. And all of what I saw in there is just, you know, has been done so well. I don't think there's anything that I would think, God, I want to do something there. It's been done, and I'm so happy it's there. It's framed 
everything I know about making records. And Lou is an immensely, you know, uh, important figure in the history of California music. So I don't want to hog this. Uh, anybody have questions? As a producer of the movie Woodstock, how did your, this great musical history that you just told, how did it find its way into Woodstock? What was the journey after this period of time? You traced the, the, the songs, the orchestrations, the themes, the beats in an extraordinary way. Oh, thank you. Uh, the question was, how did, did, did this music, how did, how did our film, how does it get to Woodstock? Well, I mean, as Jacob said, you know, we think of Laurel Canyon as three distinct periods. You know, the first period is this period where people come here just to be in a band and there's multiple singers and multiple songwriters, much like the Beatles. And the film really deals with, in a subtle way, why it doesn't last. As David says, in the end, bands tend to devolve because, you know, it's turn on the smoke machine and play the hits. But as it, as it relates to getting to Woodstock, it's really more about not getting to Woodstock because Woodstock was the first time, I remember reading a quote from Bill Graham when people were going on and on about the sense of community in Woodstock and he said, Woodstock was the thing that let everybody know we could make money. And even though it's a very cynical thing, it's true because once people realize the power of, let's say, baby boomers and reaching baby boomers and shows, things change and they change because people are, you know, want ego and money and they want to be big stars. At this time, it's not about that. So before you get to Woodstock, you got to get to psychedelic music. And after you get to a psychedelic music, you get to a sort of movement into, you know, a retrenchment into rootsy, folk rock kinds of things. Country gets influenced in rock. And that's where Woodstock is in 1969. And Joni Mitchell is already here. So I don't know if I've answered it, but that's how I see it. Uh, say a little bit more about uh, Phil Spector's role in Laurel Canyon. <coughs> he asked about Phil Spector's role. Well, I think, you know, the wall of sound and what he was doing was, it wasn't really, I don't feel like it's related to what this is. It's, it's certainly the beginning of Los Angeles recorded music and Los Angeles pop music. And, you know, those records, the construction of them sonically, the architecture of sound in those records are amazing. He's an amazing arranger. But the songwriting is really closer to Brill building classic things like that. And he's taking a little, maybe some doo-wop a little bit from, from New York. So I think the Beatles, in a sense, really, you know, um, eclipse that. And... I, I, I don't know how it relates to necessarily what we're talking about. It's, it's the foundation maybe in a sonic way, you know, the room mic and reverb and how they're using the, the, the echo chamber in some of these studios. One other thing I, I just wanted to say really quickly is that, you know, Jacob and I have recorded in these studios. And in Los Angeles, you know, I hope these rooms will be here in 10 years because a single-story building on Sunset, 
you know, may not may not last with the with the development of Hollywood. And uh, and in these rooms, you know, are are echo chambers and the sound of a room and so much of our history and our culture in America came from stuff that was recorded here. So we wanted to go in and film them in the beautiful way that we see them and not just as, you know, four square walls on a, you know, on a linoleum floor. So anyway, that was our sort of homage to them. And that's what the echo and echo in the canyon is a little bit of a, a reference to. Can they be made historical places that can't be knocked down? <laughs> Can they be made historical places? That's a very, yeah, no. I, I hope so. You know, I know they did it with capital. Uh, so hopefully they'll do that. Sir, up here. Um, you mentioned that documentary, you don't know where it's going to go after a while. Well, how did it affect you going back to this and also Jacob? How did it change you and your ideas of uh, <coughs> Well, I don't know that it did. I mean, if, if you're a student, you know, you can never stop being a student if you're myself. Um, I, you know, I learned a lot, but it wasn't, um, I don't know if it was, I mean, I'm expecting to, though. You know, I hope so. And it's actually, I knew most of this music, you know, but I, I didn't know how intertwined it was. I didn't know how one song was influencing another. I mean, I, I, I got them all, like, in a big windfall being a teenager in the 80s. I didn't get them, like, one at a time and learn. I didn't get to feel the story progressing as somebody was young at that time. So I just knew them all, and I couldn't tell you which one was 64 to 66. They were just all songs to me. Um, that all sounded like mid-60s music. But I, I did get to learn really, I mean, I've lived in Laurel Canyon. I, did, I didn't know how, um, how, I mean, I knew about Frank Zappa. I knew there was certain, some stuff up there. I knew Mama Cass was up there. But this was interesting to learn. They were really just on, they were on foot. They were that close to one another. And they were really playing each other their songs. And they were, I think, with, they were definitely competitive, but I think they were friendly. And I think they, that excitement of playing somebody their song I know we don't, I've never experienced that. We don't really have that. We might, you might give your friend a copy of your record or something, but you can't really, we don't do that. I never have in my generation. Sit around and, you know, give each other the guitar and play me your new song. So, it's, I mean, and they did that, and there was a great benefit to doing that. I, I can only imagine that if you know you're going to someone's house later that evening, passing the guitar around, you're probably going to work really hard that day to finish that song. So I think that's exciting, and that's, it's kind of an archaic idea to someone like me today, because we don't do anything like that. And maybe for me, it's just that, you know, I can't do anything without an, an artist. I can't make a record without a song that somebody, right? So the process of doing a film created another avenue of being a in a collaborative way with an artist. Now, he would tell you that my collaborative, <laughs> my collaborative ways are not so collaborative, but... <laughs> Sometimes more than others. <laughs> okay, touche, anyway. About sharing music and you know going to other's houses and playing any uh, copyright problems, uh, any fights about that? About who wrote what, or is that the getting permission? What do you mean? No, I mean when you know because well, for instance, uh, you know, well, I I took this kind of riff and I made it into a song we never heard about that if they had them it's must be water under the bridge at this point I mean, it's 50 years uh, didn't hear much about that so one more. Jacob? Yeah. Um, what really impressed me about this 
impressed me about the film was the way you had dialogue with the people you were talking to. I don't want to say interview because I don't like that word, but you really looked at them and you were looking in their eyes and it was like all about them. It really wasn't about you and it was really very nice the way you did that. Well, okay, I'm, thank you. I dare you to try to talk too much next to Brian Wilson. You'd be happy. <laughs> if it seems like I was like giving him a lot of room, that's just because I couldn't figure out what the hell to say <laughs> and trying to stay out of his way. But, that, but it's also true that, you know, I mean, I watch tons of, loads of documentaries, and there are times where I wish just, you should just let the guy or the girl talk. Let them talk. That's why we're watching. You know, there wasn't, there was, you know, la later. Okay. <laughs> are you listening to yourself? <laughs> uh, you know, the, really, though, these are tremendous people. And I just, we didn't, as the film went on, there was holes that we needed to fill for the storyline as the, it started to develop. But very, particularly early on, we just let these people talk. We just kind of gave them the subject matter and what did they want to talk about? We didn't really say we needed this answer, that answer, just let them talk. One last question. First of all, uh, I gotta tell you, tremendous film. The PC was wonderful. You did well with it, so thank you very much. Thank um, you, Bert. The question I have is, um, if time allowed for it has been longer, are there any other artists, like John Mitchell or others, that you wish you were able to uh, include in the film as a time or other? Can you repeat the question, please? Yeah, if, if time permitted, uh, were there other artists who he wished he could have included in the film? You know, we, the, someone else can make the film about the search for the individual and the singer-songwriter period, and Joni Mitchell's amazing, and everything that happened was amazing. But for us, there was just something really wonderfully innocent about the beginning of it, before everybody gets famous and before you know, they're, they're, there's big money like in Woodstock. And, and so those were the bands to me that represented the, the exchange of ideas. You know, the film is more about the echo than it is about the canyon in a sense. It's about the, you know, the echo of people's ideas going between each of them in the bands and then to the other bands and then across ultimately to England where it changes the course of the Beatles. So for us, there wasn't really anybody. I mean, we did explore the monkeys and we did explore love. And we had a whole sort of section on about the Sunset Strip and love was this band that was you know, very powerful, more, so, more powerful in a sense than The Doors, according to Tom Petty. And the Monkees to us represented Hollywood's attempt at doing something like the Beatles. You know, as, as often in our town, they take something good in culture and turn it into something not so good. But you know, with the Monkees, they, they made something great, I, I think, anyway, and the songs are great. But we couldn't really use it because as you're trying to tell a story, you know, you just, if you're at like an hour and 10 minutes and you go into the monkeys, you're like, wait a minute, what, you know? And so we were just trying to keep the pacing really lean and, you know, keep the narrative strong. So anyway, that's it. But thank you all. Thank you for making the movie. Thank you, guys.